Our scripture reading this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For what I, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Good morning again and welcome to our worship service. We're grateful for your presence. If you're visiting, as always, we encourage you to come back. We're grateful that you have chosen to be with us today. We're honored by your presence, and we appreciate so much your willingness to be a part of our service today. We are thankful for the opportunity afforded us to read, to study, to meditate on the truth of God. And today we want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at some excerpts from this great chapter on the resurrection. And I want us to think for just a few moments about this great theme, the resurrection. I would submit unto you that the resurrection is one of the cardinal doctrines of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, when you talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ... You need to understand that Christianity as a whole stands or falls on this great theme. And so today we want to think about the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection of Christ to us as believers. The first thing that I would call your attention to has to do with an explanation about the resurrection. In verses 1 through 4, the passage that David read a moment ago, the Apostle Paul sets before us the facts of the gospel. And he identifies the individual witnesses of the resurrected Christ. And so in verse 1, he said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel I preach to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to to the scriptures. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he basically summed up the gospel as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You and I need to be impressed with the importance of the resurrected Christ. I think it's interesting to go back to the book of Acts because in the first five chapters of the book of Acts, Luke emphasizes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For example, in chapter 1 at verse 3, he speaks of how Jesus, after his suffering, presented himself alive with many infallible proofs, being seen by them for 40 days 
and speaking things pertaining to the kingdom of God. In chapter 2, when Peter preached the first gospel sermon, he spoke of the death of Jesus Christ, of how those Jews who were assembled in Pentecost, or rather assembled in Jerusalem on Pentecost Day, how they had been responsible for the death of God's only Son. And yet in chapter 2 at verse 32, he points out that God raised him from the dead. He said, whereof we are all witnesses. In chapter 3 at verse 15, again, emphasis is placed on the resurrected Christ. In chapter 4 at verse 10, again, emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 5 at verse 30, we have another great statement concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bear in mind that the book of Acts is a record of the birth of the church. And we follow the birth of the church, the infancy of the church, and the ultimate growth of the church, the spreading of the gospel. And the work of the church and the Christian religion all hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said when he wrote to the saints at Rome in chapter 1 at verse 4 that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Well, what about those who were witnesses to this great Deed. Well, look at verse 5. In verse 5, we have Paul identifying for us some of those who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. He said he was seen by Cephas or by Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present but some have fallen asleep. In other words, there had been some that had already died by the time Paul penned these words to the church at Corinth. In verse 7, after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Now sometimes in a court of law when an individual is being tried, witnesses will be summoned. And their testimony provides credibility to the case. Is it not the case here that those who were witnesses, eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ, that they provide testimony or credibility to this great deed? As I said a moment ago, Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so first of all, there is this explanation concerning the resurrection of Christ. But then in the second place, there is an evaluation of the resurrection. And this really has to do with the implications. What if Christ had not been resurrected? In other words, what if Jesus never broke the bonds of death? What if after he had been placed in that tomb of Joseph, of Arimathea, 
he had never come forth. Do you remember in Luke chapter 24 when the women went to the tomb on the first day of the week, early in the morning? They were met by two angels. And the question was posed, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Jesus Christ arose from the dead. Well, what if Christ had not been resurrected? What are the implications to us? Well, look at verse 12. In verse 12, Paul begins to offer a series of statements that help to reinforce to us the significance of the resurrection. In short, Paul is saying that if Christ has not been resurrected, then Christianity is nothing more than folly. So in verse 12, he said, If Christ is preached that he has been, ra that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Now look at verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain. Think about all of those individuals in the first century that went everywhere preaching the word. For example, in chapter 8, we read of the persecution that swept the early church. And Luke tells us that they were all scattered abroad with the exception of the apostles. And those who were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Why were these men willing to suffer hardship? Why would they endure persecution and suffering? Would they have done that for something that could have been classified as nothing more than a fraud? if Christ had not been resurrected from the dead? Why would they have borne the great burdens of their ministries had Christ not been resurrected from the dead? In short, their preaching would have been futile. It would have been vain. But note what Paul says following. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is vain. And your faith is also vain. In other words, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is futile. We're putting our faith, our trust, in something that does not exist. In other words, there's no hope. He said, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not raise. The apostles, these men were willing to die for the cause of Christ. James was the first recorded apostle to have been martyred for the cause of Christ in Acts chapter 12. Stephen was put to death in chapter 7. Do you mean to tell me that these men would have been willing to give up their lives for something that was nothing more than a fraud? Do you really think that these men would have been classified as false witnesses? I don't think so. So if Christ has not been risen from the dead, our faith, he said, it's futile. But then also in verse 16, he said, if Christ... If the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. 
And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. That's what we said a moment ago. And you are still in your sins. Paul here is saying if Christ has not been resurrected from the dead, then forgiveness is foreign. The Bible says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, He was buried for our trespasses. He was raised again for our justification. The resurrection is extremely important in the grand scheme of redemption. And so without it, our preaching is vain, our faith is vain, and ultimately we're still in sin. But then also he adds another point. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. What is Paul saying there? If you die believing in the resurrection when in fact it never occurred, well, you have no hope. You've perished. And as Paul said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men the most pitiable. Well, see, our hope goes beyond this veil of tears. We know that when we stand at the side of an open grave, that there's hope. There is hope for the future. Thirdly, drop down now to verse 50. Because here we have the expectation of the resurrection. First, there is the explanation, the evaluation, but now the expectation. What do we mean when we say there is the expectation of the resurrection? Well, I believe that this applies to us, that we have hope for the future. In verse 50 and following, Paul begins to chronicle some events that will take place leading to the resurrection of the body. Look at verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. You and I, we have a physical body comprised of flesh and blood. Paul is going to talk about the resurrected body. The resurrected body is not going to be comprised of flesh and blood as you and I know it. So in verse 51, first of all, he addresses the revelation of the Son of God. And he's here talking about his second coming. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now we think about a mystery as something that we're unable to know anything about. In other words, we have difficulty understanding it. Paul is going to clarify this mystery. He said, we shall not all sleep. That is, sleep in the cemetery. The body is what sleeps in the cemetery. The soul is going to be with the Lord. He said... We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. 
and we shall be changed. Paul is talking about the Son of God coming in all of his glory as Jesus pictures it in Matthew chapter 25. Peter said that Christ would come as a thief in the night. He said the heavens would be dissolved with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works therein shall be burned up in verse 10 of chapter 3, 2 Peter. When Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he said that Jesus would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. You and I have never heard the voice of an archangel, but we will. We will not only hear the voice of the archangel, but we will hear the trumpet of God. As Jesus said, all that are in the graves shall come forth. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life, those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now Paul said that when Jesus comes, that we're going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Think for a moment about a split second. Blink your eye. And you think about how fast that command is executed. Well, I believe that Paul here is saying that these events are going to occur at a very rapid pace. And so we have the revelation of the Son of God and the resurrection of the graves. Verse 53, this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jesus comes, the graves will be opened. He has the keys to the cemetery, as we noted in Bible class this morning. When he comes, the graves will be opened, and we will be ushered into the judgment. We shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. At that point in time, there will be the distribution of the rewards to the godly. Now, in light of all of this, Here's the question. Why live for the Lord? Why live in anticipation of the coming of the Son of God? Because of verse 58. In light of all of the events that Paul has talked about with respect to the resurrection of Christ, in light of our future resurrection, here's what Paul said. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not vain in the Lord. Why live a faithful, godly life? Because you have the hope of the resurrection. 
Why live for the Lord? Because you have the anticipation of the crown of life, James 1, verse 12, Revelation 2, at verse 10. You and I have before us that eternal abiding place that Peter describes as incorruptible, undefiled. He said it fades not away. It is reserved in heaven for you. It is a place of incorruption. And so we will have a body that is incorruptible, that is immortal, unlike our earthly body. And so we live for the Lord. Sometimes individuals within the body of Christ will spiritually drift. And they float back into the world. They leave the Lord. They leave the church of Christ. And they do so failing to understand that faithfulness is what assures us of the victory. Think about all that you do for the cause of Christ. Why is it that we live a steadfast, immovable life? Why is it that we engage in the work of the Lord? Well, Paul sums it up, because our labor is not vain in the Lord. The Lord is not going to forget about you. He's not going to forget about your service in the kingdom. He's not going to forget about your love for Him. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew writer said, the Lord is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. And so you and I, we have great hope before us. The resurrection is applicable to all of us because we live in hope of that future resurrection. And the basis for that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to close by sharing with you an incident that, that occurred some years ago. Several years ago, I was preaching for another congregation. And through a series of events, I became friends with a family who lived in West Tennessee. And they had a child that was sick with leukemia or cancer, and that child was taking treatments at St. Jude Hospital. And so over a period of time, our family became friends with this little boy and his family. And I would visit that boy and his family on a regular basis. And I remember one time sitting in a little break room at St. Jude, and his mother telling me, she said, I would rather give him up right now, and he was only about two years old, maybe three, I think more like two. She said, I would rather give him up right now than him live to be 50 years of age and lose his soul. And I thought, she understands what life is all about. But tragically, this little boy didn't make it. And so I had the privilege of speaking at his memorial service. And he was from a small town outside of Henderson, Tennessee, east of Henderson. And I remember Nancy and I, as we made the procession to the cemetery, he was buried in a church cemetery. And it was late in February. It was about probably 3.30, close to 4 o'clock. Late in the day, the sun was was fading fast, it was cold outside. And out, on that, out in that little cemetery was a small white casket. 
And I remember looking at that casket after I had made all of my concluding remarks, read scripture, had prayer. I remember standing there with Nancy looking at that casket and, and making this observation. If that was my child, it would take everything in my power to walk away from this cemetery today. Now I know that that little boy was gone. His spirit had gone to be with the Lord. I understand that. But you see, many of us, there is this kinship that we develop to that physical body. And so that was the, that was the problem. That is a problem for some people. Walking away from that physical body. Now, Solomon said that at death, our spirit returns to God who gave it life. To those who live for the Lord, they go to paradise, to the bosom of Abraham. As Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To depart and be with Christ is far better. So that spirit goes to be with the Lord. But that body resides in the cemetery. But that body will one day be raised incorruptible, immortal. And that body and soul will then reside in heaven with the Lord. Now why do I say all of that? Because when we stand at the side of an open grave, we need to understand that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has the keys to the cemetery. And one day the cemeteries are going to be opened. And that's why we live the Christian life, because we have hope for the future. Do you have hope for the future? Are you living for Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Is he the Lord of your life? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you're not in Christ Jesus and you're not living for Christ Jesus, when you die, you have no hope. Paul said, you're without hope and without God in this world, Ephesians 2, verse 10. The difference in being out of Christ and in Christ is reflected in Ephesians 2.11 when Paul said, But now, in Christ Jesus, you that once were far off are brought near, made nigh by the blood of Christ. We sing the song, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When we come to Christ in faith, Hebrews 11, repentance, Luke 13.3, Confession, Matthew 10, 32, and baptism, Acts 2, 38, we contact the blood of Christ. We appropriate the grace of God. We become members of the church of Christ, Acts 2, verse 47. Jesus is the Savior of the church, Ephesians 5, 23, and we have hope for the future. Do you have that kind of hope? If you're unfaithful to the cause of Christ, I plead to you today, come to Christ. If you need to come before this assembly and ask for the prayers of the church, we would be happy to pray with you and for you, and God will abundantly pardon. Would you come as we stand and sing?